the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Narcissism is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit, but how much do we really know about it? Joining me today to talk about the complexities of this personality trait is Dr. W. Keith Campbell, author of the book, The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. Dr. Campbell uses the latest scientific research methods to dispel common myths and preconceptions, and he provides insight into one of the most interesting psychological challenges of our time. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, Doctor, we often hear people being described as a narcissist. What is the definition of a narcissist? It's a great question because it means several different things. So when somebody says narcissist, um, often we're talking about, you know, some traits like selfishness or self-centeredness, maybe arrogance. or um, So we, we, we have something in mind, but, but there's different meanings to this term in uh, you know, in the in the psychology world, we talk about narcissism as a trait, meaning that we all kind of have some level of narcissism, some people who are at the high end to low end. And that trait of narcissism is a combination of a sense of entitlement and feeling you're better than others, sense of maybe superiority, but also charisma and extroversion and drive and charm and ambition. And so when you put those two things together, this combination of sort of entitlement and superiority, but also drive and ambition and charm, you get what we talk about as grandiose narcissism, which is this trait where often we see with, you know, politicians and our bosses and bad relationships. And we, we kind of see this, this more grandiose form of narcissism in a lot of places. And, and that's usually what people are talking about. But there's two other forms of narcissism that come up a lot. One is a more vulnerable form. And so these are folks that are think they're, think they're superior to others, think they deserve special treatment, but they're also a little shy. Sometimes we talk about it as covert or basement narcissism because you don't really see it as apparently. And, and they can be really insecure. So people who think they deserve special treatment but don't really get it, and they end up in therapy quite often because of the depression anxiety goes with that. And then finally, we have this this psychiatric or clinical term called narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. And so this is the personality disorder that goes with narcissism. And it's, it's a combination of a very high level of, of narcissism, but also to make it a disorder, it has to have some sort of impairment. It has to mess up your life. So if you're super narcissistic, you think you're awesome and it works for you and everyone agrees, it's not really a clinical disorder. But if you think you're awesome and it's ruining your marriage because you can't really love your family and it's ruining your work because you're, you know, being dishonest with your books or you're cheating people, uh, then it can be diagnosed as a disorder. So really, there's, there's sort of three ways we use narcissism in the psych- psychology world. And, and that's what makes it so complicated when it gets into the, you know, the everyday world. Doctor, you said that this is one of the greatest psychological challenges of our time. Has narcissism always been this prevalent, or is there something in society that's driving it today? 
Yeah, so, so narcissism is something that will emerge in societies when it's allowed to. And when it's allowed to is when you have a society that really focuses on individualism, so that everybody does what they want and don't really focus so much on the community. And it happens in a society where you can get away with a lot, where you can present an image of yourself that might not be true. So imagine you live in a small town and you know everybody and somebody says that he's a big deal. You go, look, I, I went to school with you. You're not a big deal. It doesn't work. But in a, in a big urban center, if I move in there and start saying I'm a big deal and put on social media posts and, and build this brand, I can convince people I'm a big deal. Mm-hmm. So we have a world now where people who are narcissistic, who are self-promoting, who are self-enhancing can be very effective because you have to do it to survive. So right. I think we have a world that's really conducive to narcissism. It is. It's a world on social media where everyone's trying to outdo each other. It's, you know, see me, see me. I have something to say. And and I can see how that would lead to the problem. Oh, uh, yes, for sure. It's and, and, you know, I don't mean to say, like, we're all doing this. I'm, I'm on social media right now. I'm on media right now uh, talking to you. And, and I hope people listen. So it's not that there's anything wrong with wanting to get attention. There's nothing wrong with social media. But for people who really are focused on getting attention, who are really interested in showing off how awesome they are, how much they know, or how they're smarter than you, or they want to criticize people all the time, social media is really attractive to people like that. And in the research, we find people who are narcissistic just have more connections on social media in general, more friends, more followers, more likes. It, it just works. You had mentioned before that sometimes the person can't really love his or her family. Are they able to make strong emotional contact with another person? The reason I ask this, I believe that I was actually married to a narcissist. And the reason I believe that is I think he was looking for a caregiver, someone who took care of him. And and when I changed the dynamics in our relationship, I did that for 23 years. When I finally said, what about me? and I needed something in return, he took his love. And the first thing he said was, I no longer love you. And so his love was attached to me performing an action that he needed. So when someone doesn't do what the narcissist needs, are they truly able to love? That is a, I'm sorry uh, Mm -hmm. for for that experience. Um, But you're hitting on a really good point in that in our relationships, we're often interested in a couple different things that compete with each other. One is we really want love, and love is often about giving things, you know, giving love, helping people, being nurturing, and in turn being loved and being nurtured, and that's really important. And the other thing we want is somebody to, you know, maybe give us some status, pat us on the back, make us feel good, tell us we're, you know, good people, take care of us, and make us better. And that's a great thing, too. Uh, the challenge with narcissism is you get in a relationship and you're really focused on what you can get out of it, what you can extract from the other person. Do I, does my partner, is my partner attractive and does that make me look important or powerful or high in status? Does my partner tell me I'm awesome all the time to help me regulate my emotions so I always feel I'm good about myself? You know, does my partner defer her needs or his needs with work so that my work comes first? So what happens is you get all these conflicts where the narcissist and the relationship does well with me first. And as long as as long as me first happens, that's a great relationship for the narcissist. But when me first goes away, like in your case, it's not that important. And what you're telling me is that your partner said, you know, I, I don't love you anymore. Now, that's shocking. And there's been a loving relationship because it just doesn't work like that. You can't just right. turn it on and off. Right. Um, but you can if your love is, is basically a currency that you're giving to get something because it's, it's not that important to you. And it's very hard to understand that somebody can have a really awesome car and that car could be more important to that person than a loving relationship. But that happens sometimes. And so then do these people have more difficulty feeling empathy or sympathy for another person? Oh, oh for sure. It's just not as much in their, in their language. So there is an idea, and it's still around, that people who are narcissistic and, and, you know, when you get to the more extremes, you're talking about psychopathy. And um, But when people are narcissistic, that they can't feel love, and they're incapable of doing that, it doesn't seem to be the case. For most people, 
there, there's a capacity for love, but it's an underdeveloped capacity because for people who are narcissistic, love is sort of secondary to ego needs, affection, attention, status, being awesome, being praised. All those things are more important than love. So they've spent their life figuring out how to get praised and positive feedback and attention and fame and status, but they haven't worked on that love muscle, that, that capacity to connect with people because it's not as important. So it's almost like they're uneven in, in how they're developed. And I would assume then a person who is an unconditional giver, who just gives of him or herself, that would be someone who would you know, be ripe for the picking for a narcissist. So how can that person self-protect? That, you are absolutely right. Um, I, I wrote the book called The New Science of Narcissism. And the problem with that is there's always newer science. And, and after I wrote it, there was this recent paper came out that looked at people attracted to narcissists. And it's consistent with what we've seen is that what we've seen in the past is that people who fall in love very quickly, who fall in love fully and quickly and give themselves uh, without reservation are more at risk because they're easier victims. They're not bad people. In fact, they're often lovely people. But the trick with getting in relationships with narcissists is you want to go slowly because if you go slowly, you'll see the problems. If you go too quickly, you're going to fall in love and it's going to be exciting and you're not going to see the problems until it's too late. So my advice is, you know, go slow. Go slow in relationships in general. It's going to keep you out of some trouble. And what would be some of the warning signs, the clear warning signs that we should be looking for? You know, it, with narcissism, there's this stuff that's, that's sort of apparent, you know, the materialism and the nice dress and the, you know, the, the self-presentation and, and different things like that. But often those qualities are very attractive. And so when we meet people who are narcissistic, I mean, when I meet people who are really narcissistic, I often just like them because they seem so charming and confident. Mm-hmm. And when I really like somebody, I always make that a warning sign. <laughs> but but in, in reality, the thing to do is look at somebody's track record. So if you're starting a relationship with somebody, look at their past relationships, look at their history. People who are narcissistic and self-centered or ego-involved will hurt people, and they will do it throughout their lives. People don't change that much. And so if you see a trail of destruction, you stay away from somebody. If you see somebody had loving relationships, you're like, that's a person who's capable of having loving relationships. So focus on the past more than what's put in front of you because people who are narcissistic are charming. That's, I mean, that's part of the deal. But So they're going to convince you, you know, that they're better than they are. Can a narcissist make a strong leader? Can they ever use this trait to their advantage? Oh, all the time, yeah. And that's one of those places narcissism really works is in the short term, I should say, is mm-hmm. that when we've done research on leadership, people who are narcissistic, the more grandiose narcissists, not the more insecure ones, uh, but the more uh, secure narcissists rise into leadership very quickly. They want to be leaders. Uh, they look for opportunities to be leaders. So when we study leadership emergence, that's kind of the scientific term, emergent leadership, uh, narcissism predicts that. Where narcissism falls apart in leadership is over the long term, where with narcissistic leaders, we find more, you know, sloppy ethics, rule breaking, um, you know, cheating, that kind of, you know, there's sort of darker behaviors that, Mm -hmm. that go on with narcissistic leaders. But they're very good at becoming leaders, and they can be good leaders, but they're often in very chaotic situation. It's a challenge to be in a personal relationship with this person. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the big, a big challenge with narcissism and maybe the big challenge with narcissism, either if you're very narcissistic, you're relating with people, is that relationship piece. It's that because relationships are always about giving something up that you want to get something bigger in the longer term. Marriage, you give something up to get something bigger. You know, friendship, you give something up to get something bigger. You join a team, you give something up to, to get something bigger. And that we make that sacrifice all the time in life. But for people who are narcissistic, that's more challenging. And so there's going to be lots of problems when they do it. So somebody, let's say, is married to a narcissist and they've been in this relationship 20, 30 years. And, you know, they're finally seeing the other person for what he or she really is. What are their options? How can they manage this and mitigate the damage? You know, it's 
it's a really good question you're asking and the challenging one because if you're if you're starting a relationship, you're in a, an abusive relationship. I mean, my advice is just avoid it. You know, which is the same advice you give your daughter and everyone gives. Just get out, especially if you're being hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've been in marriage 20 years, and things you kind of have a way it works, and it's stable, and there's no real abuse. And people are going, you know, do I stick with this? Do I just go get free and try something else? I wouldn't be afraid to go try some sort of therapy or some sort of counseling or some sort of work uh, to try to make things better. And the reason why is because we're finding in the research more and more that personality can change. It's not easy to change, uh, but people can change. Uh, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges with narcissism is that people don't want to change. It's, it's working out pretty well for them. And in the case of your husband, you know, it sounds like you got an ultimatum and, and it wasn't enough. So it's not necessarily going to work to give people a, a, a chance to change. But I think it's possible. And I think it's often worth a shot more than I would have if you'd asked me this 10 years ago. Well, and you know what I find? And just to, to stay along the lines of my story, he just replaced me. He just went and found somebody else. And so, you know, I, I think that what you're saying until a person really wants to change, I was going to ask you if there is a success rate with it. Because I would think, like you said, it is working out pretty well for them on the surface anyway. I mean, it really isn't, but they think it is. Yeah, it is. It, it, it absolutely is on the surface because, you know, if, if somebody's romantic interest has as much meaning to them as a car, it can be changed. And that's very hard for people to understand. You're like, I can't change my wife because she's my wife. There's no other person in the world that would fill that role. But if I thought my wife's role was really just to make me look good, I could find someone else to do that, no problem. So it's easy for them to change. Um, in terms of the numbers, it's very hard to get estimates because we don't have any great you know, clinical trial studies on narcissism, unfortunately. But it seems, when I look across all the data, that if people are willing to commit to some sort of therapy, and it doesn't seem to matter which kind, if you can just find one to commit to, some sort of treatment or some sort of intervention, uh, there does seem to be possibility for change. But the challenge, again, with people who are narcissistic is getting to do it. Doctor, what do you believe is at the root of the problem? How can we try to keep our children from going down this path? You know, it's, it's a mix of genetics. It's a little bit of parenting, but not so much. It's, it's sort of it's culture people grow up in. Um, my, my simple advice for parents, I'll try to keep this short, because this is a concern with everyone, including me, is first of all, be a good role model. You know, that, that should go without saying. And, and then the things I focus on is it's not so much keeping your kid humble, because, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that. But I say CPR focus on compassion or caring, you know, be compassionate and hope your children are compassionate, reward them for being caring and compassionate because that, that love or compassion is a really good buffer for narcissism. The second piece that I think people neglect and I think is super important is passion. Kids who do things they're passionate about, you know, it could be dance, could be sports, could be writing, could be, you know, I don't know, Minecraft, whatever the kids are into. If you're passionate about stuff, it doesn't necessarily make you narcissistic. It makes you love that thing and it makes you share it in, in a loving way. So you can be really engaged and really good at things and not be that ego involved because of passion. And the third piece, and this is the, you know, a little more parental, is, is focus on responsibility taking. It's just one thing we see with narcissism is this real strategic or slippery use of responsibility taking where people who are narcissistic will take responsibility for any good outcome they see and they'll blame anyone else when things go wrong. So if you can teach kids to take responsibility when things go right and also, and this is more important, take responsibility when things go wrong, that's going to be a buffer against narcissism. Are there any myths that maybe we didn't touch upon that you think are important for people to know? There's a few out there, and I think one that, that's been around a long time um, is that people who are narcissistic deep down are really insecure. And the reason people have this, this sort of myth is because there are these two kinds of narcissists, these more grandiose forms and these more vulnerable forms, and they, they want to think they're all the same, that they're all vulnerable deep down inside. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. People who are kind of confident and arrogant are often kind of confident and arrogant. And maybe they say they're a 10 and they really think they're an eight, 
but they're not deep down insecure individuals. They're not. And so, and, and sort of the corollary of that is people will say, if you just find something narcissistic and you really love them and they can get past that deep insecurity, they won't be narcissistic. And I have seen no evidence for that at all. And in fact, there's some evidence that if you're too giving to people who are narcissistic, they'll just take advantage of you even more. So that's the one myth I'm concerned about, the sort of the, the wounded child inside the narcissist. Not like the people who are narcissistic don't have trauma, they don't need help, but, but the idea that you can find that and heal that I think can be a little dangerous. The book is The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Campbell and his work, you can visit keithcampbell.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? You know, I think just understanding that narcissism is, it can mean a few different things in different in, in different contexts, that it can be a trait that we all have, or it can be a, a clinical disorder. But if you're throwing the term around and, and you're being indiscriminate, so you're saying your friend has a clinical disorder, it can be a, it can be a little bit troubling. So just try to be thoughtful with terms and maybe focus on specific behaviors before labeling people. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. That was great. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book, so how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Doreen Steenland, an IFC certified coach who uses neuroscience to harness the power of our brains. As a transformational neuro coach, Doreen changes brains one thought at a time. Doreen is the founder of Living Full Life Coaching. She is here today to discuss avoiding the shoulda, woulda, coulda in our communication with others. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love this topic because we've all had difficult conversations and afterwards thought, well, that didn't go as planned. So what do you believe <laughs> leads us to have a communication breakdown? Great question. I, I feel like it all begins with how we perceive the situation that we're in. Sometimes we come to our conversations with with um, thoughts, emotions, and baggage from the past that really affect the way we receive what's being said to us. Sometimes when we're having just a, what would seem like a normal conversation, we could be easily triggered by um, one word, for example, or any kind of feeling that makes us feel uncertain or a sense of unfairness or some kind of threat to our independence or position or feeling like we are outside of a social group. All of those things are, are trigger threat responses in our brains. And then when we are acting out of a threat response, we go into a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. And that often is very highly emotionally charged, and it leads to regretful conversations for sure. 
So, Doreen, this is happening in most cases when we're not even aware of it. So with that baggage and with those triggers, when we feel that happening, how do we manage these thoughts and emotions? You made a great point that it often happens when we are not even aware of it. And I want to point out also that it's not gender related. Um, It's a wired response in all humans and, and how we handle it makes a huge difference in the world. Um, one, one of the ways that we can, can tackle this is when we come to a conversation, practice coming into a conversation with curiosity and really listening to, to understand what the other person is saying. We're not listening just for facts, but we're listening for the emotion behind the facts and what might really be going on for the speaker. It's coming with a more self-aware perspective. And we're looking for um, employing listening skills that are more empathetic. Because when we come to people with empathy, it really decreases the charge. But the first thing for ourselves in order to start listening like that is to, when we get feel that trigger, when we feel that response, we need to pause. And we need to start taking some deep breaths. When we take those deep breaths, it triggers our brains to release feel-good emotions that actually can calm us down. And then we are able to transfer from the emotional part of our brain, the limbic system, to the prefrontal cortex where all the higher thinking takes place and where we can actually rationalize what is happening to us instead of just going on autopilot. Most of us live from a place of autopilot, and, and part of what is, is happening is we react and we respond the way we have always acted and responded. So when we can be intentional and pause and take some deep breaths, collect ourselves, and, and begin to ask ourselves some powerful questions. Ask ourselves, you know, where am I feeling this stress right now in my body? Most of us have a certain place that we feel the tension, whether it be tight shoulders, sweaty palms, shallow breathing, a knot in your stomach, a clenched jaw. Just ask yourself, where am I feeling this right now? And notice the sensations that you are feeling. Most of us, when we start to feel these sensations, we either try and, and, and stuff them, stop them, judge them. But instead, just noticing that we're feeling a little threatened in the moment, and notice where we're feeling that in our body, really calms things down and allows us to shift our perspective from the automatic to the the conscious choice, to an intentional choice, where we can ask ourselves questions. We can ask, what just happened here, right? What are the facts? And what assumptions am I making? Oftentimes, we come with perceptions and assumptions to every conversation. We have preconceived ideas when we come, right? And so by pausing and asking ourselves the types of questions, we can figure out what our next best option is. What do I want to be thinking and feeling right now? And how can this be a win-win situation for all parties involved? Doreen, with the goal of moving away from the programming, being less reactive and more mindful, very quickly before we run out of time, is there another tip that you can offer for effective communication? Yes. I I mean, I would say it all really begins with listening and curiosity. Being curious about really understanding and hearing the other person. I think that this is something that is missing in our society right now. I think that everyone has their own opinions and wants to share them, but few really want to understand what is happening for the other person. And we can understand and disagree at the same time. But when we when we take the time to really empathize with someone and understanding and relating to what someone else feels, um, we can connect with them in a deeper way. And we earn, in, 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 in respect, we earn the right to be heard back, right? Because there's already a connection. When someone feels seen, heard, and understood, it creates a connection 
in our brains. It creates a connection with the other person. And then they are more willing to listen to you. So when, when we have to communicate, we have to first connect before we can um, redirect in, in, in a sense. Doreen, thank you so much for joining us. This is always important information, but I agree with you. It, it feels like it's just especially relevant right now. So I thank you for being here and for teaching us about effective communication. If you would like to learn more about Doreen and her work, you can visit livingfulllifecoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Doreen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Doreen. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Today's guest, Alexis Jones, believes that we all have the capacity to live fearlessly and inspire those around us to dream big. Leveraging her entertainment background as a vehicle to empower youth, Alexis launched I Am That Girl and quickly became an internationally recognized speaker, media personality, activist, and author. Alexis also founded the company Protect Her, which is an educational program for high school and college male athletes on the importance of respecting women. Alexis has been invited to speak at the White House and the United Nations, and she's spoken to millions of youth around the country. She is a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100, and she was featured as one of AOL's makers, along with Oprah, Ellen, Hillary Clinton, and Sheryl Sandberg. She is the author of the book, I Am That Girl, How to Speak Your Truth, Discover Your Purpose, and Be That Girl. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My goodness. What a bio. I know. <laughs> so, well, you know, Alexis, you describe yourself as an all-American Southern Belle Texas tomboy who grew up in Austin with four brothers. How did you go from being that girl to the one that I just described? <laughs> Um, I think growing up with four of the brothers, I always say that, you know, when you're raised, raised with wolves, you have these wolf-like tendencies. <laughs> and, and so for me, I think that we were a very competitive family. Mm-hmm. And part of being the little sister um, was, you know, I was always trying to, you know, climb things that I had no business climbing, jumping off things I had no business jumping off of, trying to impress my big brother. So I think that even now when they show up to my events, it's always like I, I'm climbing higher in order to impress them. Alexis, your messaging for girls and women is spot on. Today's expectations of beauty leaves many of us feeling less than and worthless. What do you believe are the pitfalls of relying on outside appearance as a measurement of self-worth? Oh, I mean, where do we begin? You know, I think we have to also understand what we're up against. I think that's kind of the biggest thing is that, you know, and specifically, you know, for millennials, they consume 10 hours of media a day. Right. They and on in general, we consume 3000 brand images collectively a day. And so Mm -hmm. when we start looking at just the volume of images that we're consuming that, of course, are airbrushed. And now you have social media, which is basically your life airbrushed because it's a perfectly curated um, reel of how you want people to perceive you. And so I think it really does have some pretty devastating consequences. It's death by comparison. Mm -hmm. We're always looking at everyone else's perfect highlight reel. We're comparing our lives to these perfect images that don't exist in nature. And then we're looking at, you know, the real flaws and the insecurities and the doubts and all the things that exist in our own lives. And so for me, I think working with um, girls and women and, and having dedicated a huge part of my life to the empowerment of girls and women, it's really only ever been to remind them that you do in fact have a choice. And I think whenever I get interviewed about empowerment, it's always that it's the mere recognition that choice exists. And I think when we become aware of kind of what we're up against, then we can say, like, wait a second, in spite of all of the persuasion that's happening every day for me to feel less than and to create a sense of self, to your point, that's absolutely driven by external validation, how am I going to show up in my life today and make another choice that isn't contingent on that? So I'm always excited and inspired by uh, anytime I get to have a conversation to remind women just how bad they really are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything that you just said is 1000% correct, because I want to change what young girls hear before they grow older and then have to undo all of the things that yep. they're believing about themselves. Because when I was growing up in the dark ages, we didn't have the constant communication that kids today must deal with. And I'm so grateful because I can't imagine what it must be like for our teens, our young women that are continually 
bombarded with messaging. You can't escape it. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think people like you are, it's just so important what you're doing because you are literally, especially with, you know, the suicide rate, you are literally saving lives with your messaging. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That is, um, that is a humble reminder of the importance of the work that, that we do. And especially I have an incredible team who, you know, is able to make all of this happen. But to your point, I mean, in, in you saying you've done, the reality is this isn't just happening to young girls, right? It's, a, right? it's as powerful a messaging that's happening to young men as well, which is just this living a life that um, is, is completely contingent on, as I mentioned before, that external validation of, you know, for guys, it's bigger, faster, stronger. From girls, it's, you know, be beautiful and get attention from boys, which is kind of a lethal combination. And mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, for me, it's just how do we remind people that, and again, not just girls, but people that they matter and that the everyone is imbued with such an important, like, passion and talent. And, you know, how do we get them to recognize that? early on before they get so um, overwhelmed by what they feel like they're lacking. Mm -hmm. So Alexis, you wrote a book called I Am That Girl. Describe that girl. What do you believe it means to be a powerful woman? I think being a powerful woman is um, really a source from an authentic sense of confidence. It's just being so comfortable in your own skin. The fact that the statistics are saying that more than 80% of women don't like their bodies. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we don't even like the thing that houses us. Um, so for me, it's not only that idea of can you be comfortable in your own body, but more importantly, can you own all of it, all of the good and all of the miraculous and all of the iniquities and all of the, you know, fears, doubts, insecurities. I think that we tend to compartmentalize the things that we choose to like about ourselves as opposed to saying, I'll take the whole package, all the good, the bad and the ugly. So Alexis, on the flip side, we're talking about girls and women. You created a company called Protect Her that strives to teach young men how to treat women. What are some of the key points that you teach our young men? I think the key points are really you can't give something you don't have. Mm -hmm. um, the first time that I came into a locker room, I was asked to give a talk to the top 18 quarterbacks in the country on the importance of respecting women. And what dawned on me was that I, I couldn't just walk in and say, you need to respect women because of X, Y, and Z, because so many of these young men not only grew up in single parent households, but really didn't have male mentors teaching them what that even looked like. And so for me, it was taking a step back and saying that notion of you, you can't get something you don't have. So what does self-respect look like? What does self-love look like? What is, you know, and, and getting them to think about that um, and getting them to practice that, um, that self-love, self-compassion, self-empathy, um, because, you know, you can only treat others with dignity and respect when you first do it with yourself. So really it was, you know, coming in and, and saying, you know, I'm just interested in making sure that you love you well so that you're in a position to love others the same. So that's the messaging for men. If you could offer a young girl one strategy to command self-respect, what would that be? I mean, again, it has to start with her. My okay. dad used to always say you have to teach people how to treat you. That's your responsibility. And simultaneously, we will accept the love that we think we deserve. Right. And so this idea of we will continue to attract relationships um, that are directly in alignment, consciously or subconsciously, with how we feel about ourselves and how much we love ourselves. And so for me, you know, and I learned this the hard way, I dated several guys in a row and I couldn't understand why, you know, they weren't great guys and they, I would find out that they lied or that they had cheated and about the fourth guy in a row, I was telling my girlfriend, can you believe this happened to me yet again? <laughs> I don't understand. And finally, tough love. And this is, this is the testament of a good friend. She finally looked at me and she said, Lex, I know this is hard to hear, but you're the only common denominator. And I was like, wait what? And she was like, what are you doing that you continue to attract the exact same type of guy in your life? Because I think if you start with you, you might actually get somewhere. But as long as you keep playing like kind of this victim to the circumstances and woe is me and I can't believe. Um, and then I had to do some really hard work and lonely work and, you know, the staring in the mirror kind of stuff and saying like, wow, babe, what's going on? Like, do you know how awesome you are? And the truth was I didn't. And so I did accept the love that I thought I deserved. And it took me a lot of work to figure out how to love me hard enough so that I could attract the caliber of man in Bradley that I would end up marrying.
And Alexis, I asked those two questions back to back from both perspectives because I wanted to show that it boils down to no matter which side you're on, male or female, whether you're being the one that's treating a person a certain way or being treated a certain way, it boils down to how we feel about ourselves. When we love ourselves, when we have respect for ourselves, we don't treat others poorly and we don't allow others to treat us poorly. And that is such a key message. Amen, sister. You just summed that up (laughs) real right. This is awesome. Yes. So Alexis, what can parents do to help their children see their value and potential to love themselves? I think to me, it's really asking hard questions Uh, because we live in an era right now where there is so much consumption of media. um, It really is. We, we again, have to understand the gravitas of what we're up against. Um, And especially when you just see the hyper-sexualization and objectification that happens within culture, society, media, all of it. And so what I'm finding in the work that I'm doing, whether I'm working with middle school, high school, college, or Fortune 100 um, female executives, um, the truth is that we're also consuming that. And so starting younger and younger and younger, girls are becoming so numb to the sexualized, objectified culture that they're now doing it to themselves. They actually don't even need anyone to do it to them. And simultaneously for young men, that just becomes the standard expectation. Um, So for me, it's really asking the hard questions. It's getting them what I always say, if you can get your, you know, elementary, middle school, high school um, daughter, son to really think for themselves. That's the main thing is because there's a generation that is so on autopilot that is consuming all of this content and just regurgitating it almost like, you know, these robots who are just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to act think, believe all these things, because that's how I've seen it done. Um, So kind of getting them outside of a screen, Um, again, whether that's their, you know, binging on Netflix or the video games or the music they listen to or the social media, how do we get them to pause and turn it all off and be present long enough to create original thoughts and to ask them, how do you feel about that? And what are your thoughts on leadership? And, you know, you said this didn't this hurt your feelings. Why did it hurt your feelings? Why do you want those $250 pair of jeans? You know, I, um, I had a girl recently come up and say, like, will you post about me on social media? And, you know, she's a 12-year-old. And I know it's because she wants more followers, but I don't even think she knows why. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at her and I said, why? And she was like, uh, I don't know. And I was like, no, I, I want to better understand. You want me to post about you on social media because I have, you know, within I'm that girl, we have over a million followers. So, you know, are you after followers? Are you after visibility? Are you after validation? Like, and we sat there and we had a deep, rich conversation about something she didn't even understand that she was after. So to me as a parent, it's like, how can, and as a parent, setting down your own phone and getting present with your kids and having just real honest conversations, especially about the taboo stuff. The book is I Am That Girl, How to Speak Your Truth, Discover Your Purpose, and Be That Girl. If you'd like to get more information about Alexis and her work, you can visit AlexisJones.com. Alexis, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, I think oftentimes it's easy to say, like, I want to change the world and I want to do all this good. And and one of my favorite, most simple quotes by Mother Teresa is, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will be so brave as to make an addendum and say, go home and love your family and go home and love you hard. That's what we need more of. That changes the world more profoundly than anything else is to have the audacity to go home and love your family and love yourself so radically hard. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us and for discussing ways to help us discover our purpose, live in power and be that girl or woman. I so appreciate it. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue, guaranteed. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue's in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoro, owner of Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, a marketing consultancy and video production company. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the wave to your own success? As Nike says, just do it. 
practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. And don't forget that you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who make their living off them. But learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially along with your revenue. If you need help with your video needs, give me a call or visit my website at lamorestrategies.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R strategies.com. This is Ed Lamoro from Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, where our favorite story to tell is yours. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. your health. Joining us to talk about what veterans can do to improve their mental health and well-being is Dr. Chris Loftus, the National Director for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome, Dr. Loftus. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So, Doctor, how prevalent are mental health problems among veterans? They are fairly common. They, of course, can vary depending upon the age, circumstance, experiences they went to. What are some of the common issues veterans face? Veterans can struggle with a variety of disorders, from PTSD, substance abuse, depression, um, but they can also struggle with a lot of lifestyle and circumstances, you know, with the breakup of relationships, the difficulty finding jobs when they get out of the military, or for older veterans transitioning into retirement and a variety of chronic health issues. So, I mean, I think there's a range of things But what we want to make sure we're talking about with veterans is if they're struggling, how they can get help. Doctor, what are some of the signs that a veteran or his or her family should pay attention to that might indicate that there is a more severe problem occurring? Yeah, the key is to look for significant changes in behavior or mood. If you notice that a loved one is quick to anger or withdrawing from family members and friends, or if you yourself feel irritated, have nightmares, flashbacks, or experience trouble sleeping and concentrating, that's a sign that it might be time to reach out. Another sign could be drinking more or misusing drugs. And veterans may also be struggling if they're just not living their fullest life or they are avoiding regular activities that they typically enjoy. These are all signs that it might be time to reach out, start the conversation, and explore options for help. I do want to talk about the MakeTheConnection.net site because that site features hundreds of veterans talking about the struggles that they've gone through, how they became aware of those struggles, and then what they did to get help. 
it's really helpful for some veterans who don't know how to talk about what they're going through or maybe don't understand it to listen to other veterans talk about their experience. They can find inspiration in that. They can relate to that and they can find a language and how to talk about what they're going through from the stories that are on MakeTheConnection.net. Doctor, what's the takeaway? Seeking help is the first step. If you are a friend or a family member of a veteran, simply checking in and asking how the veteran is doing can start that conversation. And if you yourself think you might be struggling dealing with a mental health challenge, talk to a family member or a friend or reach out to your local health care provider, someone in your local community, such as a veterans group or other kinds of groups. Just get started connecting because for some veterans, it takes a couple of attempts to find that right thing that's going to help you get well. But we just want to encourage you to take that one step today towards a happier, healthier life. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.